He's back. 21-time New York Times bestselling author. He's written more than 200 books, chair of the creative writing major at Colorado Christian University, the man, the myth, the legend. Jerry Jenkins returns for a conversation at the Radio Backyard Writing Fence. For the last couple of years, I've received email from people who've said, I love it when you talk about writing, about the process. Can you do a program where somebody answers questions about writing? Well, we're going to take those questions and a whole lot more today at the back fence, 877-548-3675. Call early, call off, and get in line, brother. But we're also going to talk about the current series that Jerry has written, is writing, The Chosen. And I'm sure there's one or two people who have read some of the Left Behind books who might want to ask a question or give us a call. So let's get going. A lot to do in 54 minutes or less. Here's our website, chrisfabrylive.org. Let me thank our team behind the scenes, Ryan McConaughey doing all things technical. Trish is our producer. Gabby T's in the chair today. Anthony will be answering your calls. Look at the calendar. It's 131. Since this is the last day of the month, final day of January, the end of a great offer we have for you is today. I'm talking about Dr. Bill Thrasher's book on how to resurrect a dead prayer life. I've been telling you about that for the last month. Well, today's the day. This is it. If you want a copy, you've been meaning to, you've been put it, I got to call, call or click through today. If you are tired of going through the motions, of being involved in the activity of prayer, which is what Dr. Thrasher said he was all over. He was doing a lot of praying, but he was not actually connecting with the heart of his father. This little book will touch a nerve in your soul, but today is the last day. Have I said that yet? (laughs) Do you sense the urgency? Call 866-953-2279. You can give a gift that way, or you can give on the the website, chrisfabrylive.org. Quote, God is the sovereign master of the universe who works all things after the counsel of his will, and he has chosen to work through prayer. What a privilege to humbly cooperate with him. Thank you for your support. Call today, last day, 866-95-FABRY, or go to chrisfabrylive.org. Thanks for being a back fence friend. Jerry Jenkins has been a friend for almost 40 years. He's been an encourager to me, a mentor, an editor. He spent a fortune in red pens on me. I like to say I knew him before he became Jerry Jenkins, before the New York Times bestsellers, before the memoir of Dr. Graham that he assisted with. The third novel in the Chosen series is out. It's titled, And I Will Give You Rest. It's our featured resource at the website, chrisfabrylive.org. He joins us from the cave in Colorado. Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris, and it strikes me that when we met, the Dead Sea was only sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had just got in the hospital. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's been 40 years, and I remember, I remember you telling me, hey, if you want, really want to do this, I can help you, but it's going to hurt. Do you remember that? I do, yeah, and uh, it proved true, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're true to your word, absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's a, a question about writing. Can you tell within a sentence or two, within a paragraph or two, if somebody can write or not? You know, I can. And I know that sounds unfair and it probably is, but most professionals can. And people are often stunned to hear, you know, they spend weeks, months, maybe years on, on a three or 400 page manuscript and send it to a potential agent or a potential publisher. And 
they either hear nothing or they get an immediate response that, that doesn't meet a current need. And then they hear behind the scenes from people who will tell them this, like I do, that they, they probably made that decision within a page or two. And they go, how could they, they never, they didn't get to the good stuff yet. And I like to say, all that should tell you is, you've got to start with the good stuff because they're getting dozens of submissions per day, sometimes more than that. And they're looking for something that'll grab them and keep them and want them to, to pursue it. And, and uh, as, you, as you imply, you can tell almost immediately whether that's going to work or not. Who told you, you've got it, you can do this? I'm kind of still waiting for that. Um, <laughs> um, well, the interesting thing is that back in, back in my day, um, you know, when I started, um, there, there wasn't this business about platforms. You have to have a, a radio show or a TV show or a, be pastor of a big church or have this gigantic platform. Your writing made you or broke you. And so we beginners would send our manuscripts off and, and hope. And I'll tell you that, you know, I, I just, uh, just uh, saw a book come out. It's called My First Novel and What Became of It. It's from the novelists of Kai Libris. That's a group of people online. There's a, dozens of us who have been in the business for decades. And we're each sharing what happened with our very first novel. And I basically tell the very quick story that my first novel, uh, like an idiot, I, I only had one, one copy of it. And I was editing it before I sent it to the publisher. And I was on a plane to Arrowhead Springs, uh, California. I get off the plane. I unpack it at Campus Crusade for Christ headquarters out there. And I realize I've got, this, I've got the second half of my manuscript and I left the first half on the plane. No. Now, obviously, since then, I, I keep multiple copies of everything I do. And nowadays, it's a lot easier. But, but I had two days of frantic calling. And I, I finally reached the lost and found person at American Airlines. And she said, I have your, your manuscript. And she said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll send you the first half if you'll send me the second half. <laughs> now, that was the best review I've ever gotten. And I could have gone to heaven right then. <laughs> And I was happy to to make a copy of it and send it to her, but that that was uh, so encouraging. And um, now she's not a professional, but she was a reader, and and that said to me, I, I've I've got something here. That's really good. You know the story of Hemingway and his. I think it was his first wife was Hadley. Do you know the story about the manuscript? And uh, he goes down to the. They were living in Paris, and he goes someplace for a bullfight or, you know, boxing match or whatever. And Hadley meets him there, and to be kind to him, she brought what he all the stuff that he was working on, in a, uh, you know, suitcase. And she gets there and realizes that she left the suitcase on the train and it's no longer there. <clears throat> and and he said, well, it's okay. I've got the carbons. You know, the the second thing. And she said, no, I put the carbons in there, too. <laughs> oh. And so to this day, they've never found it. You know, there's, there's these early manuscripts of his that are floating around. But he said later on that that was the best thing that ever happened to him because he got a lot of his bad writing out in those, and he, he let that go, and he started, you know, the things that he worked on later on. So there's, and I think you would agree with that. There's a lot that early writing that you have to work out of you, don't you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I started as a sports writer before I was old enough to drive. And I I had to get about a quarter million cliches out of my system before I could could learn. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, that story, that Hemingway story reminds me of, of sort of the opposite story of Stephen King. He was uh, drinking and, and doing some drugs and trying to write, and he was dirt poor. I think that he and his wife were living in a trailer, and he, she was checking the wastebasket every day to make sure he wasn't drinking too much or, or doing too many drugs. And she found this manuscript, and she's reading through it, and she says to him, why did you throw this away? And he goes, it's, it's hopeless. I'm, I'm just done. She said, I think you have something here. I would finish this. So he finished it. Carrie became his first novel. It's still in print to this day. And of course, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. All of his books are still in print because his wife pulled it out of the trash for him. <laughs> yes. Well, and that goes to, you need an encourager. You need somebody who will who can see what you can't see. And uh, so let me leave it right there. We're going to come back. We'll talk with Jerry about the chosen novels that he's written. The third is out, The Chosen, and I Will Give You Rest. And I'm also going to open the phone lines for you. If you want to ask a question, you can ask about writing. You can ask a, a beginner question, an advanced question, whatever. You can, you can talk with Jerry about the, uh, the chosen novels or any kind of left behind. 877-548-3675 Jerry Jenkins, whose son Dallas is the creator of The Chosen TV series, has written more than 200 books, 21 New York Times bestsellers. He's known for biblical fiction and times fiction, like the Left Behind series and other genres. In fact, he wrote a book years ago, I think it came out in the early 90s, so like 30 years ago, called Hedges. They're going to re-release that as a and update it uh, a little later this year. He helped Dr. Graham with his memoirs. Uh, I didn't know that you, I, I knew that you were a member of the Colorado Authors Hall of Fame, but I didn't know that you were a chair of the creative writing major at Colorado Christian University. How'd that come about? Yeah, that's really an honor. Um, I'm on the board at Colorado Christian, and the, the deans were in one time talking to the board about how, you know, to, to be competitive in the, in the national university market, you need to keep adding majors and things like that. And I was looking over their whole corpus of, of degrees, and I said, do you have a creative writing major? Because um, people are interested in that, and we've you know, our research through the Christian or through the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild shows that 81% of Americans believe they have a book in them. Um, I, I added that most of them are wrong, but they, they think they do, and that's a big market. And um, so they said, well, w- would you have curriculum that we could, could build from? And I said, I've got several years of teaching and online mm-hmm. teaching. So my team uh, that's headquartered in Nashville worked with their people and put together this major, and uh, they use my name on it as the, the titular head of it, and it has become very popular. It's just been a couple of years now, and uh, they they keep signing up people every day, so it's been really gratifying. That's great. Um, you said something a minute ago I want to come back to before we get to The Chosen, and that is, in your day, you would send off the query letter, you would send off a few chapters, and here's here's what it is, 
And so the publishers were judging mainly by content. There, there's some of, you know, caveats in that. But mainly they're looking at, can this person write? Do they have something to say? And what are they saying? Does it line up with what the truth is? Now it's less judging by content and more judging by, is there anybody with everything that's out there, will this, will this catch hold with all of the inundation of material that's out there? Is that a pro? So that's it's changed. Publishing has changed. How do you view that? Is that a bad thing? A good thing? A mix? What do you say? In many ways, it's uh, I've found it troubling. Uh, I remember when when my students, my online students, started to write to me and say, um, you know, you liked my work and I liked my work, and people you know in my orbit think there's something here, but when I send it off, they say. What's your platform? And I, I didn't, at first I didn't believe it. It was sort of like, uh, what's that got to do with thing? I mean, I have a platform because my publishers helped me build one years ago because they liked my writing and published it. Um, and so I started, asking, you know, I know everybody in the business. And so I was calling publishers and agents and I said, is this true? Is this what we're asking people for? And they said, the economics of publishing are so hard now that we put you know thousands of dollars into a, a debut novel or a debut nonfiction book, and we need to know from day one whether they've got a following that will give us an, a good start here, because ninety or ninety-five percent of our books fail and and hardly sell enough to you know make up what we put into them, and uh, so it's a, it's a sad reality, and I, I think it's not as much that they aren't still looking for good content. But the writing itself, the actual quality of the writing itself, um, it's almost like they don't care. If, if, they, if they get a manuscript and it's beautifully written, uh, in fact, I had a, a, one student, and it's very rare, but I had a student, uh, he was an elderly guy, and he used to work for the CIA. He was a Southern writer, and his stuff was gorgeous. And I would say, and, and I'm pretty tough, as you know, as an editor, and I said, I, I wish I'd written this. And I tried to hook him up with agents and publishers, and... The, the publisher said uh, it's not Christian enough. The secular publisher said it's it's too Christian. The agent said we don't know what to do with it. And uh, wh what's his platform? What's his, his following? So I tell people, you know, you should probably spend about 10% of your writing time building your platform, getting a following. Uh, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish that publishers were still out there saying, just show me a beautiful piece of writing and let's work together to, to, to make this person known. Yeah. But it's like you say, it, it is, it's just the way it is, you know, yeah. and you can lament it all you want and go ahead. I do too. But, um, but, but the, because I've seen, I've seen manuscripts that come across my desk, Hey, have this person on. And I've found not just typographical errors. I mean, you can find typos in my books, but I've found errors that all it would have taken is typing three words in a in a do a Google search, and you'd seen that that's not true. And right. I wonder, and so I wonder, you know, what does that say? Well, let, let, let me get off of that and go on to Chosen. You have written the Chosen novels in present tense. Is that true for all of them? It is, and the reason I did that, uh, I started, and, and basically we're doing this backwards. You know, most. Um, films or TV shows are based on books. Well, The Chosen is based on the Bible, but these novels are based on the show. Uh, 
So I'm kind of pressing my nose up against the glass and, and asking my son, who created all this, uh, if I can play too. And he was happy to let me do it. But when I started writing the first one, I was starting to write it. You know, it's historical fiction, obviously. Um, now, I believe the story is true. The, the story of Jesus, obviously, is true. But we're using plausible creativity to add characters. For instance, uh, the, the only reason we know Simon Peter was married is because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Can't have a mother-in-law if you're not married. So we knew he was married. That's all we know. So Dallas and his co-writers for the show give her a name, give P Peter and uh, his wife Eden uh, a relationship and a, a marriage and things that they go through. And so I'm, I'm anyway, I'm writing the, the novel based on this, and I'm writing it in past tense as I write most novels. And it, it wasn't working for me because this is a 2,000-year-old story anyway. And so I thought, what if I just did this in present tense? And rather than saying, uh, Simon arrived home to find this, uh, Simon arrives home and Eden says. And it just, to me, it lent a sense of immediacy to a 2,000-year-old story. So that's why I did that. But uh, as I say, we're kind of doing this backwards. The novels come after the, the show. And I'm writing one novel for each season of the of the TV show. And tomorrow in theaters, what happens? Tomorrow, um, they're releasing the first, I think it's the first two or three episodes of season four. Um, and then two weeks later, they'll uh, bring out the next three. And then two weeks after that, the final two. So the, the whole season will be in, in three different settings, basically, uh, in theater. So you can see it on the big screen. And some people have misunderstood this and said, oh, it used to be free, and isn't this terrible that they're going for the money? That's not it at all. It, it is a new audience. Yes, it does bring in money, but nobody has to do this. You don't, you know, if, if you can't afford to or don't want to, uh, you can wait for it. As soon as it's had its theatrical release, it'll go on the, on the, uh, the website and the app, and it's free, as always. It's always been free to anybody in the world. And, uh, and will continue to be that way. But it, it's going to be exciting to see it on, on the big screen. Last time they did this, it was number one in the box office against all the big Hollywood movies. Yeah. I, I have to find out what, what you think of all this. I wanna, but but the, the main question I have about the writing is, do you, do you call Dallas up and say, hey, Dallas, is it okay if I do <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a little bit different dynamic. You know, he used to be known as Jerry Jenkins' son. I'm now known as Dallas Jenkins' father. <laughs> and and uh, and in this thing, you know, I helped him get started in the business years ago and finance some of his movies and that type of thing. But this is all his. And so when I say I'm, you know, asking if I can play too, that's true. Um, I, I will say this. When I did the first novel, both he and his, um, his two co-writers said, wait a minute, you need to add more to this. We, we want you doing this because of your creativity, not ours. It doesn't, you don't just want to mirror what's on the screen. Now, when we do get to things that, that you see on the screen, or, or we quote scripture or Jesus, that's exactly the way you'd see it on the screen, because I don't like things that disagree like that. Um, but they're saying, add characters, add dialogue, add you know more speculative, plausible fiction to the true story. And that really freed me up. And uh, so there are times when I'll say, you know, is this what you guys are implying here or can I do this? And uh, almost every time he says, we want these novels to stand alone if necessary, if nobody's even seen The Chosen. Right. Now, obviously, most of the readers are going to be, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't <laughs> seen The Chosen, but 
but most of most of the people have seen it and, and want to do this. And I'm getting a really gratifying response from people saying, this made sense to me. There were things I missed on the screen or I didn't quite hear it. Now I know what that means. And then the, the addition of more creative plausibility, they like that. Yeah. I got to ask you about the, the feeding of the 5,000. That's in this uh, third book. But I'll get to your calls. Again, 877-548-3675. What question do you want to ask of Jerry Jenkins? Writing, chosen, left behind, otherwise. 877-548-3675. Lewis is in Chicago. Hi, Lewis. Hello. Great thank to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking my question. Sure thing. I said thank you for having me. Thank you for taking my question. I wanted to ask about The Chosen now, because unfortunately, I'm one that hasn't seen it. So where can I see previous episodes, first off? Great question. Yeah, you just go to thechosentv.com, and that's The Chosen app. And uh, you can, you, if you have a smart TV, you can cast it to your TV from your phone. Now, if you're anywhere near my vintage, you might have to call a grandchild to walk you through that. <laughs> but, it, but it really is easy and it's free. It's also on uh, the streaming services. You can find uh, find it on Amazon Prime or, or Netflix. Um, and, and if you just Google that, you know, where can I see, where can I see the chosen f- for free? You'll find all the resources you need. I have written a book. I call the book Jesus is in Genesis. Mm. And I wrote it around the first six chapters. Another one is coming from 6 to 38. Another one is coming from 39 to 50, where I get the patriarchs and Joseph in there. I want to turn the book into a course. It's actually, I, I, I did this cover... I had somebody on Fiverr do the editing. I got it published through Amazon's uh, Kindle Direct. So it's available for sale on Amazon. I just haven't marketed it. So I wanted to know what you think about possibly turning it into a course and how should I initiate that process? I think the best way to to do that would be to get yourself uh, either the online version or the, the hard copy version of the Christian Writers Market Guild Market Guide, the Christian Writers Market Guide. It lists all kinds of agents and all kinds of publishers, and and just study that and and do your due diligence and see who's looking for curriculum, coursework, that type of thing. And uh, and there'll even be lists of freelance editors and writers in there who who specialize in doing that kind of thing. So you get somebody to come alongside who's done this before. That's probably your best bet. So the self-publishing, the, doing the Amazon thing, getting somebody else to edit it, look at it, that's a good thing to do. But as he said, there's he's probably not seeing a lot of interest because nobody knows about it. Uh, so you you have been throughout uh, 40 years ago, you, suggest, you said don't self-publish, don't self-publish. Do you still say that? Um, I, I do still say that with certain caveats. There are times to self-publish. Um, but my, the whole point of my teaching online, my, my writer's guild and anything at jerryjenkins.com from freebies, you know, free tips and blogs all the way up to courses you can buy is I'm trying to train people to compete in the marketplace and be traditionally published, which means they pay you, not the other way around. You mentioned I've, I've written over 200 books and, and have been a published author all these decades. 
I've never paid one dime to be published. Anybody can pay to be printed, but you want to get get paid to be published. And uh, and then if you exhaust all your efforts there and it doesn't happen, it, it either could be that your writing is not good enough and you're not going to be able to compete very well. But if you still want to be published, you can pay to to be printed or or get on the Kindle, you know, self-publishing route, uh, and many others like that. Or maybe your message is so esoteric, it, it only has a small audience. It's still needed. It's still necessary. Uh, people should still see it. Um, and and maybe you still feel called to do that. So that, then it's worth the effort. Um, I have self-published a couple of my things that have run their course with a traditional publisher. So they've already had, had their sales and, and, and everything, but maybe they're writing books that I, I can sell when I'm speaking or when I'm teaching online. Um, so there are, there are reasons to do that. And there are some good self-publishing companies out there. There are also some bad ones that will just take your money. They'll print the alphabet if you send them a check. Whatever you want to print, um, they'll, they'll print it unedited unless you pay them. They'll print it on proofread. They might, you might have a, an amateurish cover on it. So there are reasons to be careful of self-publishing. But, um, but there are also some good ones. So if you, if you do your homework, you can, uh, you can succeed at self-publishing in, in certain limited um, uh, experiences. Lewis, thanks for your call today. Jerry Jenkins is with us at the back fence. The Chosen Novel 3, and I Will Give You Rest, is out. It's our featured resource, chrisfabrylive.org. More calls if you want to ask about writing or about any of the novels or the books that Jerry's written, 877-548-3675. More straight ahead on Moody Radio. Tell me about the ministry of CareNet since 2008, this network of uh, pro-life, a pro-abundant life resource centers around the country have documented more than a million babies who've been saved from abortion. And you, I hear the, I hear this all the time. You, oh, you people, you pro-life people, you care about the baby until it's born, and then you don't care at all. Well, that's not true with, with CareNet, and as evidence of that, I've also been telling you about their ARC ministry. I just clicked, I'm looking at it right now, clicked CareNet at chrisfabrylive.org, and you'll see in the, the menu, Abortion Recovery and Care. You click that, and you go to the ministry that they have where you can start your healing journey right here. What are you experiencing about your abortion? Sadness, regret, guilt, questions, pain. They are so compassionate with those who said yes to abortion but are having regrets about it. And they come alongside men and women who were responsible for that abortion and give really compassionate care. Find out more about them. I know you'll be encouraged by their ministries, and maybe you need this help or you know someone who's going through that, go to chrisfabrylive.org, click the green CareNet button there, chrisfabrylive.org. Our friend Jerry Jenkins is with us today at the back fence. The Chosen Novel 3 and I Will Give You Rest is our featured resource. Gary's in Chicago. Gary and Jerry, go right ahead. Hello? Yes, Gary, go right ahead. I'm sorry. Um, 
over the weekend, I was talking to a guy. I said, what did you do for a living? He says, I'm a ghost writer. You know, I said, well, who do you write for? He says, ministers, teachers, um, you know, important people. They, I do the writing for them. And I said, well, don't they, you put your name on the, on the, in the book? He said, no, they put their name on the book. I, I get to know their writing. I get to know how they, their style and what they want to, what's their um, interest in the book about. And then I write it for them. And then they read it and they put their name on it. And it, it's one of their books. And I was wondering, you know, sometimes these uh, ministers, they're doing all the work they do in their church and they got, 32 books under their belt. And I was always wondering, how do they do that? 32 books. And they said, well, they, have, they hire people to write for them. Is, is that true? And did, have you ever used ghostwriters yourself? Um, it is true, Gary, that they do that. I would never do that because I'm a writer. Um, I, I, I don't need somebody to write for me. Um, and actually, I have ghostwritten some in my, my, my past for some names that you'd probably recognize. Um, I don't do that anymore, and, and I've come to the place where I say it doesn't hurt that person to acknowledge that they've had somebody come alongside. It's still their work. It's still their homework and their, all their study and their pedigree, everything that goes into that, but, um, but they're acknowledging they needed help with the writing. And so they can say by so-and-so and, and maybe even in smaller type, uh, Joe Smith or whoever the ghostwriter, you know, former ghostwriter is, and I encourage writers to, uh, there's work like this out there. You can, you can make a little money writing for somebody who doesn't have the time or the, or the ability to do it. But it's only fair to have your name appear on it. So you're not really a ghost. You're an as-told-to writer. And I think that's more ethical, too. And, and no reader is going to look at that and say, oh, my goodness, here I thought this was from Pastor So-and-so, and it's actually a, a writer coming alongside. They don't care. They, they, what they care about is the content and is it good. And uh, usually it is. That's why they are able to, to hire ghostwriters and have these things published. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it used to be much more prevalent. And I think um, there are probably still several big-name Christian leaders who use ghostwriters. Um, and it's, you know, it's part of the business. I, I'm not necessarily a proponent of that. As, as I say, I, like to, I think writers deserve their, their credit, too. Well, that's what you said when when you were in the middle of the Left Behind and you were writing the kids version of the two, you had written the fifth book and and I came to you and said, Derek, please let me do it. And um and you were adamant that it was Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins with Chris Fabry, you know, smaller print. But you said, no, your name needs to be there uh, so that people know that you were part of it. So you were living that out way back when. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's really important. It's good for your career too. I mean, the fact is, Chris. After that, you and I did twenty other books that were your idea and basically your writing and creativity. And uh, I came alongside as sort of a, a heavy editor, for lack of a better term, <laughs> and uh, and we shared credit for that. I think that only helped. And of course, now you're you're on your own and, and never look back and have ignored me ever since. But that's that's okay. <laughs> I like I like the term heavy editor. And that's putting it really kindly. It has nothing to do with your weight and everything to do <laughs> with with the work that you had to do. Okay, Jacob is in Illinois. Jacob, you're on with Jerry Jenkins. Hi. So I have been doing some writing myself for the past uh, about four years. Um, I send out a weekly email. Uh, it's kind of like a devotional. I share the gospel with people at work. I'm an electrician. And it just started with one person that I thought 
just needed some kind of encouragement. And it's grown to about 25 people now, which isn't really a lot of people, but it's still people that has been consistently getting the gospel on, on a weekly basis. And the large majority of them have told me that you have something here and you should get this published. And so I was just kind of wondering, do I, do I really have what it takes? Or is this just some people just saying this? And I mean, could I, could I actually write a book and how would I go about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good question. And, um, and the answer is that you won't know until you try. Um, it could be that you that you have something really great here. The problem is what we t- talked about a little earlier, and that's this platform business. Um, if you go to an agent or a publisher, they'll say, "How many followers do you have? How many people, if they heard that you that we published your book, would immediately want to buy it?" And and no, twenty five wouldn't wouldn't turn their heads at all. They want thousands, not hundreds. Um, but it, what I think I might do in your case is maybe try a blog where you're doing this online and and just promote it. You, you know, you don't have to pay to, ha- to have a bunch of ads uh, published and that type of thing, but just start, you know, with your own mailing list. Maybe you've got a list of email people that you keep in touch with and just say, check out my, my blog on this subject and, uh, and see if it grows. Make your blog interactive. Um, put the emphasis on the reader, not necessarily on you or on the message. And, uh, and maybe you say, if you enjoyed this blog, um, write to me and tell me your favorite Bible verse and why, or tell me your favorite uh, Christian song and why. And then with each blog, maybe you print a few of those where you say, you know, so-and-so from Cleveland said their favorite song is this and here's why. Um, and that person, if, you know, they'll come back to, to see if they made it and they'll tell their friends. And as that grows, all of a sudden you'll find that you do have a platform. So, um, that you may very well have something here that's worth uh, worth being published, but uh, you'll want to build that platform, build that following, and that will that will impress publishers and agents. What helped me the most, Jacob, was finding somebody who actually did what I think I w- thought I wanted to do. Uh, it just so happened that Jerry Jenkins was a couple of floors down from me at Moody, <laughs> and I could go in his office and bug him. Or when he came on the program that, that we were doing at the time, you know, ask a question or, or hand him, here, t- take, it, take this and read it, you know, when you drive home. Um, find somebody who's actually doing the work and let him or her come alongside you and be able to give you constructive criticism. If you can find that person, and there's there are so many people who now have been published and are willing to give time and effort. Jerry also has his online writing course. We've got a link to jerryjenkins.com at the website as well. You can find out more about that there. Go to chrisfabrylive.org. But thanks for your question. Lucia is in Tennessee. Lucia, go right ahead. Yes, I wanted to know um, how do you divvy up your time, not just now that you've been doing this for years, but even those beginning days when you had so many more responsibilities and to make yourself disciplined and you block out that time without anything getting in the way and how you continue to do it today. I like that question a lot because um, in, the, in the early days, it was very difficult. I was working full-time at Moody. Uh, I was vi- vice president for publishing. And uh, so, you know, a full-time daily job where I wasn't writing, I was managing. And uh, I had a young family. My, our, our three sons were little. And um, 
I would get up early to drive in Chicago, work all day, drive all the way home. And I set a policy, even before kids came along, that I would do no work from the office or any writing from the time I got home until the time the kids went to bed. Of course, sometimes we put them to bed at 4.30, but that's another story. <laughs> but actually, what that did was it left me only from about 9 to midnight to do my writing. And I had a lot of writing to do. I wanted to, you know, I was, I was being published and I was, you know, being productive. And I'm not a night person. I'm a morning person. Um, so I maintained that policy so that when I wrote, I wouldn't write with guilt. If I came home and shut the door on the kids and said, no, don't bother daddy, he's busy writing, I could tell them they're my top priority. But kids don't, kids, kids hear what you say, but they believe what you do. And so I just made that policy standard. And until my kids got out of the house, I was there every day for hours, uninterrupted, just with them, went to all their ball games and all their activities and their appearances at school and that type of thing. But I forced myself to, to do that writing from nine to midnight. And it was some of my most productive time. Now, for 30 years, I've been full-time freelance and the kids have been gone and, uh, and so I'm writing, you know, I'm a morning person, so I can write in the morning. But it is a matter of discipline. You decide what, what the best time of day is for you. The best writing I do will be from dawn until noon. And then I do my, my media stuff and my um, email stuff and all that. There's my teaching online, I do that in the afternoon. Um, but it, it is a matter of, of setting deadlines and keeping them sacred and making sure that, uh, the, that you re remember that the only way to write a book is with your seat in the chair. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Okay, Art, before we take a break, Art, what's your question for Jerry Jenkins? Yes, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, I just want to uh, speak to something that uh, is uh, the topic of conversation here. And I'd like to read some scripture if you give me a second. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. How do you reconcile that scripture to your enterprise of writing books about the Bible? Of course, there is a, a place for the church and believers to be salt and light into the world, and yet be not of the world and in the world. It seems that your enterprise uh, is walking a fine line there, and it seems that you're violating the uh, the scripture that I just read. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, and and uh, that scripture weighs heavily on those of us who are devout about this. Uh, we don't do it for the commerce value; we do it for the ministry. We do it. Uh, because we want people to know Jesus and and uh, and come to faith, and that has happened. When when means happen to come with that, like something becomes a sort of a phenomenal bestseller, all of a sudden you get overwhelmed with income, and what you do with that income, I think, speaks to what what's really in your heart. Are you a lover of money, of mammon, of people, or, of, or are you a lover of God? And uh, I, I had a great example in Dr. LaHaye before he passed. Um, you know, we were, we were sharing this kind of, um, you know, income and, and means, and he was very generous. And uh, 
uh, our feeling was we need to, to pour, you know, we're, we were raised with the idea that the love of money is the root of all evil. So um, there's nothing wrong with the money, but it's the love of it. And so we wanted to really make sure we were um, righteous in what we did with that money, put it back into ministry. And, and uh, our entire emphasis was to evangelize, to make sure people weren't left behind. Um, we aren't, you know, we, we didn't write these to be bestsellers. We were surprised, shocked, and frankly, um, very troubled about what, what all this means. What do we do with this kind of uh, uh, sort of avalanche of, of means that comes to us? So um, that's something we pray it over all the time and still do. It's, it's very important, but good question. Very good question. Thanks, Art, for calling. Jerry Jenkins is with us. Now, Jerry told me not long ago that he's working on something that is going to be the last writing project that he's going to do. What in the world? We'll talk about that straight ahead on Moody Radio. Today is the last day of the offer of How to Resurrect a Dead Prayer Life by Dr. Bill Thrasher. It's our thank you. If you support us, oh, that'd be great here on the last day of January. Just go to the website, chrisfabrylive.org, where you'll see, uh, just scroll down and see how to be a friend or partner with us, chrisfabrylive.org. I read from chapter 80 of The Chosen Novel 3, and I will give you rest. This is wonderful bread, Telemachus, Jesus says present tense, examining a loaf. I know it's not enough. It's enough for me. I can do a lot with this. Thank you. He gazes into the sky and raises a loaf with both hands. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He breaks the bread in two. And then a little later, uh, Thaddeus and little James head into the crowd asking for baskets. Thomas gives Jesus a look. This feels familiar. Jesus smirks. Maybe. <laughs> so Jesus smirked. I never thought of... Je- when Jesus smirked, that's not a snarky... It's it's kind of a just a knowing glance. What, what does Jesus smirked mean? Well, uh, why wouldn't Jesus smirk? He was uh, fully human as well as fully divine, and there's nothing that's, that's ungodly about smirking. Uh, my favorite Jesus smirk actually was the scene where he tells uh, Simon to throw his net in the water, and Simon tells him, you know, he's fished all night and caught nothing. And so he throws the net in, and at the first instant, nothing happens, and he turns to Jesus and kind of cocks his head, and Jesus does the same back to him. And then the then the boat almost flips over with all the fish. So that, that to me, that makes Jesus relatable. He has friends, he has a sense of humor, he has camaraderie, and if we only focus on his divinity, he's impossible to relate to. But we can relate to a guy who would be a good friend like that. You told me that you're, you know, you've been writing and write, writing is your gift. You know, that's what you've been doing. And you've been doing multiple projects every year for as long as I've known you. But you say that you're working on something that's going to be your last. Is that true? Yeah. The the next three things on my plate are... Um, the last three novels in the Chosen series. So I've got number four. four is done. It'll be out later this year. So I'll be working on five and then six and then seven. But then I want to do one final sort of magnum opus, uh, a memoir um, writing book. Hmm. And 
um, you know, be, being that I'm 140 now, I think I need to start winding down a little bit. And uh, and I don't I don't have the energy or the capacity that I used to. I I can remember in my early days of writing, I might write on a kid's novel in the morning and an adult novel in the afternoon. I I wouldn't even dream of trying to do that today. And uh, and I was writing, you know, I was averaging four books a year for half a century. Um, I don't want that pace either. I love the teaching. Um, and of course, when I say I think it'll be the last thing, and I call it a magnum opus, um, by that time I'll, I'll be late seventies probably, and uh, uh, probably ready to, to to retire the writing part of it. But I shouldn't ever say never because right, right. if I still have the energy and, and an idea comes, uh, I won't make any promises. <laughs> Mai says, I have loved to journal for more than 45 years. I have so much fun and I love writing down stories and then watching them come to life. I write as I see it, then update over the weeks. What is your style and what can you recommend to improve my writing? Well, it'd be really hard to, to be very specific without seeing the writing itself. And that's one of the things we do in the, in the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild. Uh, I edit stuff on screen and people see you know, what, what I suggest. Um, is, you know, about half of people who write are outliners. They plan ahead, they, they get it all sketched out, and then they write. About the other half, and that's me included, are like Stephen King, and we are what are called pantsers. We write by the seat of our pants. Put in- interesting characters in difficult situations and write to find out what happens. It's writing as a process of discovery. That's my style. And so I think somebody who's been journaling for 45 years has a lot of material. To be able, like you say, to sit in the chair and do that, that's a really good discipline to have. She may have something worth worthy of other people reading, don't you think? I do, and uh, we'd love to have her as a student, so she should check us out. Yeah, you can find out more about the Guild at uh, jerryjenkins.com. We've got the link there at chrisfabrylive.org. Uh, tomorrow, which is my mother's birthday, tomorrow, The Chosen is in theaters. The third novel, And I Will Give You Rest, is out. Jerry, always a pleasure to talk with you. And I have to say, we didn't get to talk about Saving Grayson, but you were the person behind getting me to write that. Thank you for all the encouragement through the years. That's, uh, that's a great one, and people should check that out. I was privileged to do it. Thanks for having me, Chris. There he is, Jerry Jenkins. You can find out more about him and uh, the website that I mentioned. There's a link to The Chosen, and I will give you rest right there. Uh, Click through today's information. You'll see it. And thanks for your question. Sorry we didn't get there, everybody. Tomorrow, I have a person whose heart burns with a passion to give you a passion for what will make your life really worth living. Ron Hutchcraft will be here on Chris Fabry Live, a production of Moody Radio a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.